ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. The Motley Fool LLC has been recommending individual stocks as part of their subscription newsletter service for over 30 years. Now Motley Fool Asset Management has taken the Motley Fool LLC's top 100 analyst-recommended companies and put them into a single passively managed ETF. It's an instantly diversified portfolio of 100 top-rated large-cap stocks with market-beating potential, all in one low-cost ETF. For more, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Rob Arnott, founder of and chairman of the board for Research Affiliates, whose strategies underpin about $130 billion in assets worldwide. And, of course, Rob is known as the father of fundamental index investing. He's been called the godfather of smart beta. And I can't wait for this. Uh, certainly, we're going to get into the current state of smart beta ETFs and how the rise of active ETFs is uh, impacting this uh, segment of the market. But we're also going to cover a number of other topics, including Rob's thoughts on the uh, current market environment and the Fed and inflation. We'll talk growth versus value stocks, which I was checking this over the weekend. Listen to this. There's currently about a 30% spread between growth and value this year. 30%. After a lot of investors thought uh, value would continue outperforming following its uh, performance last year. Instead, it's been all growth again. So we'll talk about that. Uh, we're also going to discuss the concentration risk in the S&P 500 and what Rob thinks of equally weighted strategies. This is going to be a wide-ranging conversation with one of the great minds in investing. So again, really looking forward to this. Rob will uh, join me here in just a bit. Now, to start this week, I have Vetify's Tom Leiden on the line with me. Of course, Tom is vice chairman of Vetify. And we also have a number of uh, topics to dive into. And I would say Tom is also one of the uh, great minds in investing. So uh, let's chat with Tom now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. 
Tom, did you uh, see this frenzy yesterday after some random crypto website said the SEC had approved the uh, iShares Bitcoin ETF? Yeah, it, uh, the ETF business, I think, is getting as bad as the Daily Mail, Nate, isn't it? <laughs> it's unbelievable. I, I mean, really, I don't know any other way to describe it other than a complete clown show. I just, uh, when I saw that headline come across, or I think it was on uh, Twitter yesterday morning, I just thought to myself, you know, first of all, the SEC doesn't approve anything, right? That's just not the verbiage that you would see in some sort of leak of information from the SEC. So that caught my attention right off the bat, just that that use of approve. But then if you just take a step back and, and thought about this, the SEC literally just delayed the iShares filing, what, less than three weeks ago, I believe, like at the end of September. So then to turn around and, uh, you know, quote, unquote, approve that product three three weeks later just didn't make sense to me. And then not only that, uh, it, and I want to ask you about this, um, on Friday, we know that the SEC did not, uh, you, you know, attempt to dispute this grayscale ruling, right? And so... It just seemed like the timing of that would be of them then going and approving the iShares ETF would be extremely poor optics, right? Doing so right after not appealing Grayscale. And then I guess the other thing, too, here is Grayscale and really ARC are technically, or you can make the case, are technically ahead of BlackRock in the approval line, right? So why would iShares be approved before them? And I'm not saying that's entirely out of the realm of possibilities to happen just because it's BlackRock, but just given what I described, it just the, the whole thing didn't make sense to me. Uh, I just, I think it shows you how bad everyone wants this thing to happen. Well, the drama is ex- exhilarating and it's it's fun to watch, but at the same time, somebody probably lost their job yesterday, right? All right. So, look, we did have some real news at the end of last week, which I was alluding to, which is that the SEC is not appealing uh, this ruling in the Grayscale case. So, of course, Grayscale sued the SEC after the SEC denied Grayscale's attempt to convert their uh, Bitcoin trust, GBTC, into an ETF. Grayscale won that case. Uh, The SEC had 45 days to appeal that ruling. And, And, of course, that deadline has now passed. So, Look, I don't want to beat this into the ground, but I mean, are, are we quickly heading towards a spot Bitcoin ETF approval here? Maybe that random crypto website was just a little bit early. Yeah, maybe it was a little early. So a little inside baseball. It was telling that the SEC did not appeal uh, and that was favorable. At the same time, the SEC has had regular conversations with almost 10 issuers that have filings in place for a spot Bitcoin ETF. That's good as well, but they haven't been talking to to Grayscale. <clears throat> so with, with that being said, now they're having conversations with Grayscale. We, I don't know that. I, I don't have any inside baseball, but they're going to have to have some conversations. And yeah, I, I think the big question, Nate, is if there is approval, will somebody be at the head of the line? Will Grayscale be at the head of the line because it's conversion? I mean, they have been submitting 10Ks and 10Qs uh, uh, all along on their current product, uh, GBTT. So going forward, you could argue that they're well ahead of the rest of the pack. No, I agree with that. And that's I, I, I didn't eloquently state this earlier, but that's what I was alluding to in that. I mean, I think you could make the case Grayscale is technically at the front of the line because they view that original 19B4 filing 
uh, w- which was disapproved by the SEC. They view that as a lie filing um, since the SEC lost this case. So I think that's an interesting storyline. Um, ARC, again, if you just look at what is currently viewed as a lie filing, ARC's at the front of the line. And what I was going to ask you earlier, I saw yesterday that you were on uh, CNBC's ETF Edge with Bob Pisani and Kathy Wood. And to your point, she made the, the comment that the SEC does now uh, seem more open to this and that there's been dialogue back and forth. A- any takeaways from her comments? I-, I thought it was interesting just that she was pretty forthcoming and that there has been a lot of dialogue back and forth. And their partner, 21 Shares, answered this list of questions the SEC had. I mean, clearly that shows movement. It is. And the, the fact that she, she didn't go into detail, but she said that there was conversation. And in fact, there was an amendment. So if there's an amendment, they're getting some type of feedback that something had to be tweaked or changed, which, again, is, is a positive move. So I think she was um, very positive about the potential outcome. I think at this point, most bets are it's going to happen. The question's when. Yeah, well, we'll move on here. I'll just leave everybody with this. Um, next time you see a, a tweet from a random crypto website, you have a place you can go to see if these uh, filings have actually been approved. And that's the SEC website. Uh, <laughs> it'll be posted there. Uh, so, all right, because they have to they have to post the rule change there. Um, in any event, let's move on. And look, I want to jump around. I want to talk equities, and then we can talk fixed income. But some people may not be aware, Tom, that you're a disciplined trend follower, right? There's a reason your site w- w- was called ETFtrends.com. And I thought, given your expertise here, and also, just because I probably don't talk uh, technicals enough on this podcast, i just love to hear what you're seeing in the equity markets right now, because there have obviously been a lot of concerns out there with rising interest rates. Uh, we now have a, uh, a, unfortunately, and very tragic, a major geopolitical situation in the Middle East. Uh, we're still not sure if the Fed is going to uh, orchestrate this soft landing. I could keep going, but but you get what I'm saying. What, what are you seeing from a technical perspective right now? Yeah, a lot of the positive momentum we had in the beginning of the year, especially in areas like uh, developed markets outside the U.S., emerging markets, small caps, they really fell off. So as I was looking at trends or just a 200-day average today on most major indexes, there's not that much of positive. Uh, S&P came down and hit the 200-day, but fortunately, with the movement in the, in the market in the last 10 days, it's bounced back. But very few sectors, for example, are above. Uh, energy is above. Uh, some of the miners are above. But most of the sectors are still below. Obviously, mid-caps, small-caps are below. International markets are below. Uh, not really positive from a trend following standpoint. What about uh, international? I know. So, well, I know it, some. It, well, I was going to say. You know, I know some investors and advisors. I think there is this sentiment out there. Uh, I don't know how prevailing it is that U.S. stocks are overvalued. It's the same thing we've talked about before, right? And 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 maybe there's better value overseas. I, I'm just curious more though from a technical perspective. Are you seeing anything internationally? So from a trend following standpoint, when you look at the 200 day, they're below, but, but you've got the master Rob Barnott coming on soon. Um, and I'm sure he's going to be talking about valuations. I mean, we have valuations that we haven't seen in a long, long time. Um, single digit PEs in, in areas uh, outside the U.S. 
including small caps. There are a lot of small cap stocks that are really profitable, kicking off dividends and are trading very inexpensively right now. I think a lot of us are waiting for the pendulum to swing because over the long term, small caps do outperform large caps, but that hasn't happened in a long period of time. And if you did diversify into those areas, you weren't rewarded and you had to have tough conversations with your clients. Yeah, it's just so interesting. It's been the same story for so long in that it's been mega cap uh, stocks, right? Large cap growth in the U.S. U.S. continues to be the whatever, the best house on a bad block. It's just I feel like I've been talking about the same thing here for 10 or 15 years. And just when you think things are going to shift, we just see more of the same. And, yeah, I am going to talk a little bit about that with uh, with Rob here in a little bit. Um, Tom, on the fixed income side, and, and not from a, a technical standpoint, obviously, just, I guess, more of a sentiment standpoint, a running thread that you and I have had, which uh, spans back over your last several ETF prime appearances, has been this tug of war between ultra short duration bond ETFs and then an ETF like TLT, the uh, iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF. And I, I don't want to be, a, again, a broken record here, but let me just lay this thing out. So, you can get about a 5.3% SEC yield in an ETF like SGOV, which is the iShare zero to three month treasury bond ETF. And that's essentially risk free, right? Or you can get a 4.9% yield in an ETF like TLT, but that has a duration of about 16 and a half, nearly 17. Now, listen to this. I, I pulled a few stats here. So, since the first Fed rate hike in March of 2022, the iShares 20 plus year Treasury bond ETF, TLT, that's taken in over $34 billion in new investor money. And then if you look just this year, it's taken in nearly $18 billion, which that's good enough for a third place out of all ETF inflows in 2023. That's happened despite it being down 32% performance-wise since the Fed began raising rates, and then down 11% this year. And so I'm just curious where you're at on this right now in terms of whether or not to take uh, duration risk. Clearly, a lot of investors are comfortable with this risk. Well, they are. And you and I have talked about it. We're surveying advisors all the time, and most advisors feel a year from now, rates will be lower. We don't know if we're going to have a recession. We don't know how uh, tough it will be if that happens. Uh, most people feel we're going to be higher for longer, but they do feel rates will be lower. So if you've got money on the sidelines, whether it's in money market funds or short duration governments, it's nice getting the yields that you're getting right now. But if rates go lower, those yields won't be available. So some have jumped the gun, as you point out, and maybe a year ago went longer duration. But a lot of advisors now are starting to put that money to work. They're trying to lock in those longer yields. And in addition, if we do see lower rates, as you know how this works, uh, something like TLT will actually have some appreciation as well if rates drop. So during those periods of time when rates were rising and you had uh, losses in your bond portfolio, um, you can have an opportunity to make some of that back. So it will kind of add insult to injury for many people who abandoned the 60-40 and sat on the sidelines, which maybe that's worked for them and, and it feels good to be safe. But if we do see rates lower in the future, you're not going to be getting 
5% in a money market fund or a short-term government bond ETF. I, it, this thing's going to move quickly, probably, and it's going to feel that way in the next 12 months. Um, there's a lot of Fed talk that's going around today. We're going to hear from the Fed in a couple weeks, and uh, they may be done. And if they are, and as an investor, you can top tick rates by actually going longer duration, consider locking in some of that longer duration yield with the ability that you might have some appreciation as well down the road. Yeah. And on that appreciation, I don't know if you saw this, there was a great uh, chart or matrix last week from Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld. And I, I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but just to give you a flavor here, and I know you get this, this is more for, for listeners benefit. So basically what this laid out is what happens if say interest rates rise by 3% or fall by 3% and then everywhere in between. And so as an example, let's say rates fall by 150 basis points. Two-year treasury would have a total return over the next 12 months. This is estimated at 6.5%. Meanwhile, a 20-year treasury would have an estimated return of 26%, to your point on, again, capital appreciation. And I'm not again again, go through all of these. Here, here's my thing when I saw that, uh, that chart. First of all, I think you have to compare what those returns look like to shorter-term treasuries and, you know, what the, what the relative trade-off is. But I think more importantly, it's how do, you, how do you view bonds in a portfolio? And I know I've talked about this quite a bit. My bias is to view bonds more as a ballast, and a portfolio is a, a, um, something with, without much volatility. It's a safer portion of the portfolio, and I'll take the risk on the equity side. The challenge with being in something like TLT is you do have pretty significant volatility. And so even though we consider and say the risk-reward moving forward maybe looks a little bit better now and that rates could come back in, we don't know for sure. And if rates were to jump a little bit, you could have some some real damage on top of the damage that investors have already seen over the past couple of years in that bond portfolio. That's the challenge for me. Now, I think if you're holding – Let's say you're buying a 20-year treasury or 30-year treasury and you're holding it to maturity. You're, you're trying to match assets and liabilities and, and, and stuff like that. I, I get it. That makes sense. But if, if you're just trying to play the capital appreciation in longer-term bonds, I think that's dangerous in, in a bond portfolio because, you, I mean, you look over the past year and a half, it's been equity-like volatility. Does, does that make sense? It, it absolutely does. But I think if we look uh, into the future, the probabilities of us seeing another – 100 or 200 basis point uh, hike in the market. I mean, we could see that as as far as rates, but some real crazy stuff would have to happen. I, I think the message for investors is if, if you sidestepped the decline in bonds during a rising rate environment, it, it looks like there's clear skies ahead. So don't miss out on that. Get back to the 60-40 because we know people are not good at timing markets, whether it be bond markets or equity markets. What's going to be really interesting, so we have seen pretty uh, nice flows into ultra short duration bond ETFs and shorter term bond ETFs. But I know you've seen these massive amounts of uh, investor dollars going into money market funds. I actually tweeted out a stat last week from Strategist Todd Sohn. So he noted that over 1.1 
trillion dollars has gone into money market funds over the past year. $1.1 trillion. Money market fund assets have grown 25% overall during this time. I I just find that uh, uh, unbelievable. And by the way, pretty lucrative for fund companies because a lot of those money market funds aren't exactly uh, cheap, (laughs) at least not all of them. But any thoughts on money market funds? Because again, that's uh, you know, if rates do start coming down, then investors are going to feel it there. Yeah, it was interesting yesterday, Nate, when we were looking at Schwab's earnings numbers. And when you dug into it, they just weren't seeing the deposits that they saw a year ago. Uh, I think a lot of people are using the banks. They they feel like I want to keep my money safe. I'm going to put it into CDs. I might put it into money market funds. Deposits at banks are looking fairly strong. And yes, they're paying or trying to pay competitive yields. But you look at some of the earnings numbers of the banks, especially like B of A came out today and had a real strong beat. They're one of the biggest consumer banks out there where they're making money on deposits. They're making money on credit cards and things like that. So I I think we're still in an area where the average investor out there is if they're making more money, they're not putting it in equities and they're not putting it in bonds. They're, They're keeping it safe. Yeah, but again, it gets back into that tug of war because if you're parking yeah. that in, in, you know, in a short-term investment vehicle and rates do come back in, you're going to have that reinvestment risk. So I, I just think this is something we're going to continue to have a conversation about over the uh, the next year. I find it fascinating, and it's especially getting, again going back to the uh, TLT flows, just seeing the massive amounts of, of money going in there. Clearly, there's a lot of investor sentiment that that's you know that's where you want to be. Uh, Tom, just a few minutes left before I let you go. I don't think you're going to be back on this podcast until I, I, I think late November, early December, somewhere around there. And so I wanted to ask you, are, are there maybe uh, one or two ETF stories that you're going to be watching for the remainder of the year? And I would say anything non-crypto related because we talk enough about that. But a- anything in particular you would highlight? Yeah, um, a couple things, Nate. First of all, the alternative income area of the marketplace has just caught fire. I mean, led by the leader, uh, JP Morgan's equity premium ETF, JEPI, J-E-P-I, approaching 30 billion in assets. It's crazy. Um, Kicking off about 8% yield. But there are a lot of sister strategies out there that are doing well also. Uh, We are going to have new players in the market too. Um, Morgan Stanley has a version uh, with Parametric being the sub-advisor, which, you know, rumor has it, it should be out in just a matter of days. It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. When you look at crane shares and they have their own versions, um, we've talked about the K-Web version, which is that uh, China internet version where they have a covered call strategy where it's kicking off almost 5% a, a month, almost 60% annually. Uh, that ticker is CLIP, K-L-I-P. Uh, it, it's a whole new asset class. And it, when we're surveying advisors, they're saying this should be a core position in, in portfolios because regardless of the direction of interest rates, the covered call strategy income seems to be pretty consistent. What's your take on that? I, I have mixed feelings here. Um, if, if, first of all, by the way, there have been a ton of copycat products coming to the market, right, based on the success of JEPI. And uh, even even a lot that are playing off of the uh, JEPI ticker symbol. My, my thing is I just don't know that investors and advisors as a whole 
um, fully understand all of the the risks and potential complexities of this product and what you may be giving up and and the risks you may be taking on. So if you fully understand those, great. If you want to have a cover call strategy and give up some of your upside, you have a little bit of a downside buffer. But, you know, if the market were to go down, I, I don't know, 40% or 50%, you still have a lot of downside exposure there. Um, you know, there are tax considerations. I, I just... I, I worry about how these are used in a portfolio and um, what happens if markets go to either extreme, whether that be up or down. Investors may be surprised at what their experience is. I think that's it. I think the products do exactly what they say they're supposed to do. Um, I think they, they can have a place if you understand where they fit in a portfolio and you know how you're using these or using these. Is, is this equity exposure? Is this fixed income exposure? You know, So long as you have your head around that. Uh, but I, I do worry a little bit about the complexities of some of these. Yeah, Nate, it's good advice. It's not easy. Uh, just the tax treatment alone uh, is complicated and it changes uh, year over year. So there's a lot to um, dig in there. You've got to get your accountant involved. But again, it's kind of the beauty of the ETF business. We continue to see innovation and choice. But like you said, look at it very, very closely. One other quick strategy is managed futures, which tends to do well when markets are volatile. Um, but one I like is the IMGP DBI managed futures strategy, uh, ticker symbol DBMF. Andrew Beer's a portfolio manager. This guy's been at it for a while. Um, when you take advantage of currencies, so the dollar's been on fire. He's taken advantage of that. He's also got some um, fixed income futures uh, that he has included there too, and also commodities. So if you've got disciplined strategies and diversification among those areas, it, it's an opportunity to further diversify a portfolio and take advantage of times like these when maybe equities and fixed income aren't doing that great, but you can actually participate in other areas of the market. Again, like uh, these covered call strategies, you've got to do your homework and understand how they work. Yeah, for sure. And to your point on potentially stocks and, and bonds not doing so well together, I don't know if you saw this Andrew Bear who you mentioned, he had a great thread on uh, Twitter or X yesterday talking about this and basically stating how the correlation between stocks and bonds has, has risen over the past several years. And so investors and advisors might want to look for uncorrelated assets and uncorrelated strategies of which something like a managed future strategy would fit the bill. Um, my, you know, my take on that, I, I, yes, I, I, I get that. But going back to our conversation on bonds, I think it depends on what you think is going to happen here because what if what if rates do come back in fairly substantially and you are in longer duration bonds? Well, then that 60-40 portfolio might work, you know, decently in that situation from a capital appreciation standpoint. Let's say let's say rates stay elevated and you can still clip five and a half percent risk free. That's pretty good in the 40 percent of the portfolio as well. Now, the question in that scenario would be what happens to stocks if rates remain elevated? My point being is that, and by the way, Andrew Beer has forgotten more about this stuff than I'll ever know. My point is, is that it's not always straightforward. And so I think, again, taking a step back, it certainly makes sense. You want to own uncorrelated assets in a portfolio. It's just it's so difficult in this environment to know what's going to happen. I don't think a lot of people coming into this year would have thought, the, you know, stocks are up and 
and you know with the risk-free rate at whatever five five and a half percent uh i i just the stuff is not always straightforward no you're you're right and i would think that somebody like andrew could see uh rate shifting and could take the other side of the uh the futures market there hopefully but you you know who knows but uh it 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 doesn't get less complicated as we see these types of strategies enter and um, more credit to you, Nate, for talking about it because, you know, somebody sees a new innovative ticker, you got to go to school. It's, it's not uh, your grandfather's ETFs anymore, right? All right. Well, I'm hoping uh, my next guest, Rob Arnott, can take some of the complexity out of some of this uh, the stuff we're talking about. Tom, always great chatting, uh, excellent perspective as usual. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. That was Tom Leiden, vice chairman of Vetify. According to the National Cancer Institute, cancer is expected to affect one in every two people in their lifetime. But a revolution in biology is driving significant advances in cancer diagnostics and treatment. The listed company opportunity set tied to oncology continues to expand significantly, but oncology remains a complex sector which requires expertise to navigate. Introducing the TEMA Oncology, C-A-N-C-E-T-F. Invest in the prevention and cure for cancer. Visit TEMAETFS.com or contact your financial advisor to learn more before investing carefully consider the funds investment objective risks charges and expenses contained in the prospectus available at temaetfs.com read carefully before investing the income strategy symposium brings together experts and thought leaders to help you generate more income for your clients join us on friday October 27th for this free event at etftrends.com slash webcasts slash income strategy symposium. I'm now joined by Rob Arnott, founder of and chairman of the board for Research Affiliates, who currently powers the index behind 36 ETFs globally with some $51 billion invested. That includes ETFs from Invesco, Charles Schwab, PIMCO, and overall about $130 billion in assets are managed worldwide using investment strategies developed by Research Affiliates. And Rob is now joining me via phone from Miami. Rob, so great having you uh, back on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Wonderful to have a chance to visit. Okay, so I was looking back. Uh, you last joined me in February of 2021. And I'm sure you'll recall that was right around the peak of the mania in uh, SPACs and crypto, uh, meme stocks. And I actually want to start by playing a clip for you from that conversation. Let me tee this up real quick. Look, this environment looks very, very much like uh, the uh, bubble of 2000. It's it's not even like uh, a year before the bubble burst. It's it's right at early 2000 in terms of market behavior. We we actually defined the term bubble a couple of years ago in a way that can be used in real time which is important because most people use the word long after the fact, saying, oh, that was a bubble. Um, our definition is really simple. If you're using a discounted cash flow model or a, some other 
simple valuation model, you would have to make implausible assumptions to justify today's price. And second part of the definition, just as important, the marginal buyer doesn't care about valuation models. Okay, what assumptions would you have to make to justify GameStop at 400? Pretty implausible. Does the marginal buyer today care? No, it's either a short covering their shorts or it's a, a retail speculator speculating on short sellers covering their shorts. All right. So that was perfect. You said the environment in February 2021 looked very much like the bubble in the uh, early 2000s. And now we can look back, right, some two and a half years later and say, obviously, you were spot on with stocks like GameStop and certainly with uh, crypto. And we also talked about uh, the ARK ETFs later in that conversation. Those are down big, unprofitable tech. But here's my question for you. So you you were clearly right on those uh, frothy areas. But if we look at the broader markets, I, I ran these numbers yesterday. So the S&P 500 is actually up about 21% since our conversation. The NASDAQ is up about 17%. And certainly there have been some sizable drawdowns uh, in between, especially last year. But the bottom has never really uh, fallen out of the broader markets. And so I'd love to have you just assess the current market environment versus the one we saw back in uh, February 2021 when we last visited. You know, it's funny, uh, listening to those comments in February 2021, my initial instinct is is to say, uh, you know, whatever he said back in February 2021, I'd say the same thing today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've had a uh, remarkable triple peak in uh, tech, different names at each peak, but the summer of um, uh, 2020, the end of 2021 and the summer of 2023, all three of those represented periods of time when uh, tech had surged, different names of tech in each of the surges, but tech had surged to comparative valuation levels that were uh, near or at all-time highs relative to the market. Now, the tech bubble itself in 2020 was the granddaddy of them all in terms of absolute valuation levels. But relative to the market, we've had a triple peak, and uh, today is yet another of those peaks. So I look at this, and I think uh, we, we wrote a paper a few weeks ago entitled uh, The AI NVIDIA Singularity, Breakthrough Bubble or Both. And just to cut to the chase, our conclusion was it's both. It's a breakthrough. AI is the real deal. It's very, very important. It's very, very powerful. Uh, The narrative is a little ahead of the reality. Um, uh, In some areas, AI is absolute amateur hour and uh, dangerous to use. Uh, In other areas, it's it's, um, remarkably powerful and better than most human beings. So uh, it's it's the real deal, but we've had tech revolutions in the past that were the real deal. And ultimately, what's often over, overlooked is that the biggest beneficiaries of tech revolutions are their customers. Their shareholders, unless they were early shareholders, usually aren't. And they usually aren't for the very simple reason that um, uh, Brad Cornell coined the expression, big company, del- big, big market delusion where investors 
start to think that everyone involved in this arena are going to be wildly successful. They overlook the fact that, firstly, um, they're competing against one another. They won't all succeed. Secondly, there will be newcomers that aren't even on the radar screen yet. And those newcomers, some of them will be big players and will crowd out the existing players. And so all of that tends to be overlooked, creating a bubble, which, as I noted in that previous uh, 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 taping, was best defined as a situation where you have to use implausible assumptions to justify today's prices. Well, that's true of many of the FANG Plus stocks. Now, here's another factoid that uh, I find absolutely remarkable. If you look at the 10 largest market cap stocks in the world, uh, the top seven are U.S. tech companies. The next uh, six are U.S. non-tech companies. And 19 of the top 20 stocks in the world in terms of market value are U.S. companies. 19 out of 20. I've never seen concentration that intense. I've never seen concentration at the top as intense as 7 out of 7 being U.S. tech. Now, I'm liberally using the term tech. Um, is meta uh, social media or tech? Well, their competitive advantage is tech. Is Amazon a retailer or tech? Its competitive advantage is tech. So I'm liberally using the term tech, but seven out of seven at the top, all U.S. tech companies, 19 out of 20, all U.S. companies. Pardon me, is the rest of the world completely dead economically? Hardly. So I look at this as an example of huge concentration in the U.S., huge concentration within the U.S. in U.S. tech, meaning that those stocks are priced for perfection and the U.S. market is priced relative to the rest of the world for something approaching perfection. Well, to me, this, this means that the opportunities are very clear and very clearly elsewhere. To, to your point, let, let me ask you this. So obviously, if you look at the largest tech companies and, and just growth stocks in general, they've really powered the S&P 500, especially those sure. top 10, right? Those top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 make up something like 33% of that index. But, right. you know, NASDAQ is up big. And I'm just curious why you think growth has performed so well this year. Does it go back to the AI mania you were speaking of? Because I, I want to give you a couple of just very quick data points, which I know you're very well aware of. But if you look at just very simple growth and value ETFs. So, for example, if I look at the Vanguard growth ETF, ticker VUG, and compare that to the Vanguard value ETF, ticker VTV, there's a 32% performance spread there this year. If I look at the iShares Russell 1000 growth, IWF versus iShares Russell 1000 value, IWD, 28% spread. So yeah. w w what's driven that? Because I feel like the narrative coming into the year was that value would continue to uh, outperform after it seemed to turn the corner in 2022, but that hasn't happened. So, so why is that? Uh, the, the catalyst for this, of course, was the AI revolution. ChatGPT opened people's eyes to the possibilities of um, AI. Uh, I'll give a couple of specific examples when ChatGPT4 was first released, <clears throat> I asked it to write a um, short bedtime story 
with uh, knights in shining armor and unicorns. And it wrote a 500-word um, short bedtime story that uh, any, any writer of children's books would have been proud to say, I wrote that. It was brilliant. And then I asked it to write a short bio on me, and I never knew that um, I graduated from the University of Chicago with an MBA <laughs> and that I started my career at Goldman Sachs. Both of those were pure fabrications. So in one case, it did an extraordinary job. In another case, it was catastrophically bad. Um, and people have gotten in trouble using uh, uh, chat GPT to write papers because it, it, it makes things up out of whole cloth. So it's um, not ready for prime time, but it, it opened people's eyes to the possibilities. Are you a graphic artist? Uh-oh, if you're not really good at it, um, you'd better learn how to use AI because AI will, uh, you won't lose your job to AI. Nobody will lose their job to AI. They'll lose their job to somebody who knows how to use AI. If you're a graphic artist, if you're a computer programmer, you'd better learn how to use these tools. They're really powerful. Um, if you are a, um, a cab driver or a limo driver from the airport, you're going to be supplanted, not necessarily in the next five years, but in, in the coming decade or so, you'll be supplanted by uh, AI-driven vehicles. And so it's going to be transformative. But uh, as with all tech revolutions, this will create more jobs than it destroys. That's People look at the jobs that are going to be destroyed and wring their hands. Um, pardon me. Uh, did TV destroy jobs? Did the computer destroy jobs? Did the Internet destroy jobs? Oh, my goodness, yes. Every single one of those is true. Did it create a lot of new jobs? Of course. Do we miss the jobs that were destroyed? No, we do not. That's an observation that is just completely overlooked. And so the jobs that will be destroyed will never be missed a generation after they're gone. Um, so the AI revolution was the catalyst for this surge. But is the reality going to match the hype? Not likely. Is the reality going to exceed the hype? Well, you need the reality to exceed the hype in order for prices to rise from current levels. In other words, um, top companies in the U.S. stock market will outperform the U.S. stock market only if they exceed lofty expectations. Is that likely from today's expectation levels? Not really. Another thing that we've looked at in the past is what happens to top ten names. We looked at top 10 world market capitalization stocks going back to 1980 and asked what happened over the next decade. Every single top 10 list in the last half century, uh, only two or three of the names survived on the list 10 years later. Seven or eight were gone. Uh, only one or two beat the market over the next 10 years. Eight or nine underperformed. Now, there have been times when the one or two that won won big enough 
to mean that that top 10 list was collectively beat the market, but that's very rare in terms of calendar decades that only happened in the 2010s. The only two winners in the 2010s from the uh, list at the start of the decade, the only two that still survived on the list were Apple and Microsoft, but they rose from the bottom of the list to the top of the list, and as a result, the, the list itself beat the market. But that's the only decade where that was true. In most decades, companies at the top are targets. They're targeted by competitors. They're targeted by regulators. They stop being the upcoming good guy who everybody admires and start being the predatory bad guy. The very competitive behaviors that put them on top are suddenly treated as predatory. And so top companies, because everyone's gunning for them, usually don't exceed lofty expectations. But just in terms of growth versus value moving forward, and I certainly hear what you're saying in terms of this potential that the reality um, doesn't exceed the hype in AI-related companies and, and tech and growth overall, but we keep hearing that value is not dead and investors simply need to stay patient. But as you know, investors, you know, they've been let down year after year if they've taken a the value yeah. approach. So, so what changes that moving forward? Well, they have been let down, and, and they haven't. Um, if you embraced a, a pivot to value in the summer of 2020, um, you're still ahead of uh, those who stuck with the frothy growth names at the time, but not by much. Um, and relative valuation does matter long term. If value is priced to reflect expectations that lots of these companies are irrelevant and many of them will go bust, uh, all they have to do to beat the market is to uh, exceed bleak expectations which is pretty easy to do. On the growth end of the spectrum, when it gets this frothy, what they have to do to beat the market uh, is to exceed lofty expectations, and that's a tall order. The thing that's interesting is um, if people uh, see a store and things are on sale, um, they'll go in and they'll be very excited because of the lower prices. When it comes to investments, when the prices are down, the enthusiasm evaporates, and it evaporates for a very simple reason. Bargains become bargains by dint of creating pain and losses on the way there. And nobody wants to embrace pain and say, give me more of that. But the simple reality is um, uh, anything that's newly frothy and ex overpriced got there by creating joy and profit. And people don't want to walk away from that. So investing sensibly uh, always involves a dose of discomfort. Um, this, is the, this is the challenge of contrarian investing. You're always uh, investing in a direction that is, is profoundly uncomfortable and uh, at odds with human nature. Now, what does that mean? think in terms of margin of safety. The Magnificent Seven, the seven largest market cap stocks in the world, the seven largest in the U.S., these seven companies are world-straddling colossi. 
they're enormously successful, enormously powerful. But um, the, whoever coined the expression Magnificent Seven must not have seen the movie, because at the end of the movie, four of the seven are dead. And the inspiration for that movie was Seven Samurai, where the outcome's even worse. So, um, which which three of the seven do we think will be the survivors ten years from now? Uh, I wouldn't want to guess, but I would very comfortably guess that most of them are going to be big underperformers in the coming decade, not because they're bad companies, they're brilliant companies, but because they're going to face competitive headwinds that they didn't expect, or new up-and-comers that they didn't know were lurking in the background. I mean, NVIDIA, uh, at the peak in 2020, wasn't on anyone's radar screen. Now, it's been around. It was it was um, uh, a, one of the frothy tech names in the year 2000. It just wasn't in the top 20. Um, so it wasn't really noticed back in the year 2000. It's been around a long time. Uh, it creates the plumbing for AI, and that's the narrative. That was also the narrative for Qualcomm and Cisco in 2000. Both of those stocks are um, a little ahead of where they were in the year 2000, but miles behind the S&P. Qualcomm's a, a great example. Um, Qualcomm was the most highest-performing stock in 1999, up 2,700% in a single year. It was priced at 280 times earnings. It was going to be powering the Internet for decades to come. How has it done as a business? phenomenally well. Profits last year were uh, 59 times what they were in 2000. It's up 59-fold in profits. Well, it must have performed well. No, it's up less than 100% since the year 2000, and it's 50% behind the S&P since 2000. 50%. So, um, that's a company that performed brilliantly but was expected to perform even more brilliantly. I think we've got a bunch of those right now. Rob, with uh, growth and, and value, how does the Fed play into all this, if at all? I think we would all agree they waited way too long to raise rates a couple of years ago. And I think went... negative interest, real interest rates and near zero nominal interest rates are always a catastrophic mistake. They They created this mess, and now we expect the same idiots who created the mess to fix it. So what happens? How do you see them pursuing policy moving forward? Do you think they're going to wait too long? They're going to keep interest rates elevated for too long? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Firstly, uh, a worthy question is, what should they do? And they always claim to be data dependent, but the data that they're focusing on moves from meeting to meeting. Uh, The data that they never mention they look at is the long bond yield. Now, The long bond yield is set by the market, by supply and demand, by bid and ask. And the uh, long end of the market, of the bond market, uh, tells us what the market thinks is a fair rate of interest for long-term debt. What is a rate of interest? It's a reward for deferring consumption. Should you be rewarded for deferring consumption? Yes. The yield should be positive, and positive in real terms. Should you be rewarded more 
for deferring consumption longer? Yes, the yield curve should be positively sloped, almost always. So if you take those as, uh, as um, uh, a guiding light that tells you what Fed policy ought to be, the Fed policy ought to be, look at the long rate, okay, it's currently in the high fours. Um, think in terms of um, the short rate ought to be less, but not a lot less. That would suggest maybe three and a half to four. When um, Fed funds was at zero, uh, long bond yields were typically around three. That tells you that the Fed ought to have been charging two, not zero. And today, with elevated inflation and elevated long rates, um, ought to be charging three and a half or four, not five and a half. And so this tells us that the Fed is um, uh, out of touch with reality. The reality is that interest rates are a speed bump to discourage malinvestment, misallocation of resources, propping up of zombie businesses, and a reward for um, deferred consumption, which has to be positive and positive in real terms but not positive enough to discourage uh, investment in long-horizon ideas. And viewed in that context, Fed policy should be very simple and doesn't require a committee of wise people. Uh, it merely requires uh, a very simple posing of the question, what's the long bond tell us is the appropriate rate? Um, Australia has been called the lucky country because it avoided recession for 30 years. Well, if you look at their central bank policy, uh, the RBA kept the short rate below the long rate, but not much below it, for 25 of those 30 years. The one exception was in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. They briefly took rates to a very, very low level, as did the rest of the world. Um, it's only in the late 2010s that they got with the global Fed religion of we can micromanage the economy, which is complete rubbish, and um, I think set Australia up to uh, suffer a recession along with the rest of the world when things uh, fell apart in 2020. Okay, Rob, so with all of that uh, as the backdrop, with our remaining time, I, I do want to briefly talk about the smart beta ETF landscape and uh, your fundamental indexing approach, which th that now has a live performance track record going on, what, 18-plus years? Is that correct? That's exactly right. Pretty remarkable. So, yeah, go ahead. So uh, we did a paper early this year uh, called Raffi Rocks that looked at the performance of Raffi through a somewhat different lens. Um, uh, we've long had the view that fundamental index is a better way to index. It weights companies by how big they are, not by how popular and beloved and expensive they are. Uh, it has an inherent structural rebalancing alpha. If a stock gets ahead of itself, we'll be trimming. And if the market got it wrong and the stock reverses, we pick up alpha because we trimmed. Um, the opposite happens in the opposite direction. We also um, noted that Graphy has a very large, very stark value tilt because you're de-emphasizing all the growth names 
you're re-emphasizing all the value names. The deeper the value stock is, uh, the more we overweight relative to the cap-weighted market. So empirically, the better benchmark for RAFI is a value index. In fact, the, the tracking error of U.S. RAFI relative to Russell 1000 uh, is about 5%, meaning you, in an average year you'll vary by about 5% from that index. Compared to Russell value, it's 2.5%. So the, the benchmark uh, should be a value index, uh, even though RAFI itself is also suitable as a broad market index. So we looked at it relative to value. What did we find? We found that in the 16 years <coughs> of the value route from 2007 to 2020 and its aftermath through year-end 22, that RAFI had beat the value, Russell value, by 5,000 basis points, 50 percentage points. It had, a, it had done so with 2% tracking error. It had done so with no underperformance peak to trough that was worse than 2.5% ever. It had done so with no underperforming two-year spans ever. Once in a while, an underperforming one-year span. No two-year spans. So we published Raffi Rocks. More recently, we published Rocking with Raffi Around the World that did the same tests all over the world and found the same results all over the world. So viewed as a market uh, strategy, it's a very powerful tool. Viewed as a substitute for value, it is a remarkable tool. And so what we find is, uh, uh, well, I would invite the question, is there a better value strategy on the planet that has more success over time and across multiple geographies than RAFI? I don't think there is. And if you have value in your portfolio, why on earth wouldn't you do it by way of using RAFI, at least for the value segment of your portfolio? Um, so this is, this is something that I think is just a lot of fun. The deeper you dive, the more interesting it gets. Just a couple of minutes left here. here. Here's the question that I'll pose to you on uh, RAFI. So I mentioned at the top that Research Affiliates is currently behind uh, 36 ETFs globally. That includes 28 here in the U.S. So uh, for listeners, for example, the Schwab Fundamental U.S. Large Company Index ETF, ticker FNDX, uh, the Invesco FTSE RAFI U.S. 1000 ETF PRF, those are the two uh, or two of the largest. And Look, these would fall under the quote-unquote smart beta ETF category, which I don't believe smart beta is necessarily your favorite term, or at least you don't feel... I liked the term early on, but then it was embraced by the entire market right. attached to all kinds of ideas, some smart and some profoundly stupid. So, so my question is, how do you view, again, that quote-unquote smart beta ETF landscape overall? Because it seems like traditional active ETFs are garnering a lot of the headlines. I, I would say smart beta has sort of faded to the background at the moment. And yeah. so how do you assess the current health of the smart beta uh, landscape, and what, what, what does the future look like here? Well... Smart beta is, is a label which has lost all uh, meaning. It's been attached to everything. So let's set aside smart beta. Um, disciplined quantitative ETFs uh, can be smart beta or stupid beta. 
multi-factor strategies. In 2016, I wrote a paper, How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong? And I pointed out that just like a stock can get ahead of its fundamentals or behind, um, a strategy can get expensive or inexpensive relative to its own norms. And if you take something like quality, quality is very popular today. Quality is expensive today. If you take a look at low beta, uh, low beta strategies were wildly popular in 2016 and got extraordinarily expensive. And the consequence was they underperformed horrifically afterwards. Today, the vast majority of factors are trading cheap relative to historic norms, which to me means today is a brilliant time to embrace multi-factor, a brilliant time to, invas- in, to embrace value because value is cheap. Um, not necessarily a brilliant time to, to embrace quality because quality is very popular and certainly not a good time to embrace tech because tech is off the charts expensive these days. So I look at the relative valuation opportunities and think that the smart beta landscape has lots of good ideas that are trading abnormally cheap. Back in 2016 when we wrote How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong, lots of factor strategies and smart beta strategies were trading rich relative to their historic norms, and we saw um, a world of hurt coming, and that world of hurt has spoiled the landscape, so people don't want to hear the words smart beta anymore, don't want to hear the words factor investing anymore, and now, now factors are cheap, many smart beta strategies are cheap, value is cheap, RAFI is extraordinarily cheap, representing a, just a terrific uh, spectrum of opportunities. Well, Rob, with that, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Really enjoyed the conversation and certainly hearing your uh, market perspective. Really appreciate you taking the time this week. Thank you for joining me. This has been great fun, as always. All the best. That was Rob Arnott, founder of and chairman of the board for Research Affiliates. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Gabelli Funds. If you would like to learn more about Gabelli Funds ETFs, you can visit m.gabelli.com slash ETFs. Next week, I will be joined in studio, live and in person, by Bloomberg's James Safert. We are going to go in-depth on everything crypto ETF-related. Can't wait for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Thank you.